everybody, and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. This two-edged sword of law and gospel recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thank you to our generous underwriters here on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Monday, July 18th, we are studying Psalm 47. The nations clap their hands and shout for joy because the true God reigns over all. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Clint Poppy. Pastor Poppy serves at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Pastor Poppy, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks, Tim. It's great to be back. Uh, It's always a great honor. Yes, sir. Glad to have you back with us today. We're looking at Psalm 47. As we prepare to look at this psalm, what context, background information should we know? Well, when I hear Psalm 47 or people talk about Psalm 47, I generally think of, oh, that's the Ascension Psalm. And uh, because of the verse that's right smack dab in the middle, uh, God God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. This uh, is the traditional psalm that is prayed, sung. There's just a a huge number of uh, musical compositions based on this psalm as well. I I think of the Ascension. It's a a victory celebration psalm. It is a uh, festive, joyous psalm, and it is uh, very, very prominent in Lutheran theology and in uh, Christology in general. So we get to talk about the ascension of our Lord today, for sure. That's that's my first thought on Psalm 47 as well, and again, precisely for that verse you said. In terms of Old Testament context and background, as we think about God going up with a shout, what might have been in the minds of the people of Israel nearer to their context not just the ascension of the Lord. You know that's a that's a great question, and people have uh, wrestled with that question quite a bit. You know when when did God go up in um, in the Concordia Commentary by uh, Tim Seleska? There are uh, several different uh, options that he proposes, and I think they all fit. Uh, One is just kind of a general theme when God leads the children of Israel out of captivity after uh, 400-plus years in uh, Egypt under Pharaoh. And so God went up and led the children of Israel out of captivity. More uh, more specifically, with the uh, shouts and the sounds of the trumpet, could be a reference to Joshua, Joshua chapter 6, and uh, the walls of Jericho coming down. Uh, that was a, a great victory celebration as well. The one that, uh, that I found the most intriguing, and I hadn't really thought about before, was the um, cloud that would accompany the children of Israel on their wilderness wanderings, the cloud that would fill the tabernacle. And people were appointed to watch as the cloud filled the tabernacle. And when it was time to move, then the cloud would go up and the 
people of God would blow the trumpet and get ready and they would go because they knew it was time to travel. That's in uh, Numbers chapter nine. And uh, I thought that was uh, pretty interesting. The one I think that most people generally refer to is in second Samuel six, when David, uh, um, it's it's an interesting story in 2 Samuel 6, but eventually David brings the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem. You know, Jerusalem's high on a mountain, and so whichever direction you come from, you have to go up. And the Ark of the Covenant went up to Jerusalem, and the Ark of the Covenant is a... Uh, beautiful picture of the incarnation and the real presence of Christ. So I think I think any of those can fit. I think 2 Samuel 6 and the Ark of the Covenant is probably the most likely. But one of the things I thought about as we were contemplating this particular psalm is this is really God's MO. God goes up. God leads the people and we follow and we celebrate because God is a mighty warrior and victorious in battle. I the one the one that I'd never really thought about is the one you found interesting from Numbers nine, where the cloud goes up. And then I, I recall also in Numbers ten, you get this when they do this journeying, they even say when the ark sets out, arise, O Lord and let your enemies be scattered, which is a, a refrain that you see elsewhere in the Psalms that gets echoed other places. And I find that, I find that intriguing, the mention of perhaps there's some a connection to that cloud. Maybe I find it intriguing because of the connection to our Lord's ascension, where he ascends and it is the cloud that covers him. In the Old Testament, you have the cloud going up. And if there's a connection there, I don't know. I, I like that. I, I'm with you. I think the second Samuel six seems pretty likely. We've seen that elsewhere in the Psalms, but that numbers connection, I, I think maybe there's something there. I, th I think so too. And I think this, uh, this general MO of how God works ties them all together. And so I don't think we can be wrong either way. Talk more about that, that general MO, the way that God works. He goes up, we follow him. Talk a little bit more about that. Uh, flesh that out some. Well, I think it has its uh, ultimate conclusion and fulfillment when uh, on the last day, when God will raise up me and all the dead and give unto me and all believers in Christ eternal life. Um, God has gone up, especially recorded for us in the ascension. God has gone up and we, by grace through faith, are already dwelling with him. And it is a time of great victory celebration. The um, visible presence of God is what leads us today because we know where God is. We don't have to wonder. He's not, uh, he's not hidden wherever his word is taught in its truth and purity and his gifts are administered according to his command and promise. There he is. And he leads us um, visibly by word and sacrament into him. We're uh, connected to him. We're already seated with him in uh, glory. And uh, that'll be perfectly fulfilled on the last day and the resurrection of the dead um, when the clouds of judgment gather. Uh, another reference to clouds could could do uh, several programs just on cloud imagery as well. 
I might have to do that sometime, Pastor Poppy. And I, I think this is the reason that I, I appreciate that reference to the to numbers and the way that God led his people in the wilderness, because I, I see a, a connection there to what our Lord is doing now in his ascension. He still is leading us through the wilderness, elsewhere the, the scriptures call us sojourners or exiles sometime. And so that even though you know, we don't see the Lord in the same way that the 12 saw him, still he is the one who's leading us and guiding us. And that is true because he has arisen. And I mean, that, that connection between the wilderness wanderings and then to the ascension of our Lord and the way that he still leads us as his church today. That's why I really, again, I, I see the second Samuel six, but I really like the numbers connection. Yes, I uh, I do too. And we, we don't often think about or talk about uh, tabernacle uh, type theology and see how that real presence of the cloud was so vitally important for the people, not only giving them shade by day and uh, warmth and fire by night, but to know that that God, who is the uh, mighty warrior, the warrior king who had just defeated Pharaoh and uh, all of his um, armies and riders, that same God warrior king is really present with them as they journey through the wilderness, uh, giving them manna and quail and water from the rock. Um, that real presence of God that we have here today in the incarnation of Christ and the way Christ continues to be present among us. It is, uh, it's, it's marvelous when all those dots are connected. Yes. Very, very good. Pastor Poppy. One, one more thing by way of introduction. Now we've not been studying the Psalms consecutively here on Sharper Iron, but for the most part, the Psalms that we have looked at recently have been Psalms of David or, or perhaps unnamed. Psalm 47 is said to be a psalm of the sons of Korah. Can you give us any background information on on who the sons of Korah are? Yeah, there's uh, many, many, um, many trees have died and many barrels of ink have been spilt over uh, over that particular question. I will, I'm sure you can settle it for us today. Uh, well, I, I can uh, I can't give you anything from Luther. Uh, on that. And uh, it's amazing that as much as we have recorded from Luther, his his comments and uh, his scolia on uh, Psalm 47 have been lost. And uh, so there's really not much that Luther says on Psalm 47. But on this particular question of the uh, sons of Korah, um, I was reading in uh, Spurgeon, and Spurgeon has the treasury of the Psalms and uh, widely, widely read and popular. Uh, Spurgeon surmises that uh, don't let the sons of Korah label fool you. David wrote this psalm. And uh, he said that with, with that exact same authoritative statement right there. And so um, I think traditionally it's been a, a kind of a, a school of the prophets kind of a thing. And uh, the uh, sons of Korah wrote these musical pieces together and no one individual wanted to take credit for it. I think that's generally how the sons of Korah are looked at. Yeah, that that's generally been my impression as well. I've I've often heard them called temple musicians and and probably descendants of Levi. I think one of Levi's sons was was Korah or one of his early descendants was. And so that's that's generally what I've seen as well. So we do have one of those psalms. And ultimately Psalm the, the Holy Spirit is the author. So Correct. so for Lutheran Christians it really doesn't matter. <laughs> 
All right. So we have the word of God in Psalm 47 to the choir master, a Psalm of the sons of Korah. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the most high is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth, sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. That is Psalm 47. Amen. Pastor, amen. Amen. God be praised. This is, and this is certainly a very joyful psalm. I mean, you see it in, in a number of ways. How does, how does the psalm get us started? Well, it's uh, when you said that, Tim, that it's a joyful psalm. Uh, if you're not joyful, by the time you get to about verse six, uh, you're being exhorted and chewed out to be more joyful. And so um, you better get with the program here if you're not full of joy. Uh, it, uh, it starts out, clap your hands, clap your hands, all peoples shout to God with loud songs of joy. And this is, this is a victory psalm. Uh, a mighty victory has just happened, and so the people of God are going to celebrate. The uh, celebration is for all peoples, and I think that is significant right there because when we're, when we're thinking about the children of Israel— Sometimes we get pretty uh, narrow focused with regard to the the activities of the children of Israel, and you know, rightly so in many cases. But God's word, God's promise, God's forgiveness, God's salvation, God's blessing is for all people. It has been intended that way. We are told that, uh, especially with Abraham, we're going to come back with him uh, at the end of the psalm, but uh, all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. And so in one sense, we are celebrating the fact that God is God for all peoples. And it's hard to not see the conversion of the Gentiles, um, you and me included, as a part of this victory celebration right here. Yeah, that, that's one of the features of this psalm is how universal worldwide it really is. And it does. It starts there right at the beginning where all people are called upon to clap their hands and shout to God, which is, you know, again, when you think about this victory that God has won, and maybe let's let's think about the context of the Exodus, as you said, you know, God delivered his people, Israel, from Egypt. And so, okay, well, of course, Israel is going to celebrate and to sing and to shout and to clap. We see that in Exodus chapter 15, where Moses leads them in that song of the sea. But the the point, of, or one of the things that we're going to see in in Psalm 47, is the reality that the victory that God wins for his people is really intended to be for all people. It's meant to have an effect for all people and to bring them joy. And, and even again, in just that uh, example, historically, you know, when the people of Israel leave Egypt, there is that mixed multitude that goes with them. And so, I mean, throughout the Old Testament, I think you see that, that when God gives his, his people a victory, the nations benefit too, 
And that's part of what's going on in Psalm 47 is that the nations now are called upon to sing praises for the victory the true God has won. And that's really just the opposite of what we see in our world today, yeah. where uh, where Christians are mocked and ridiculed and scorned and uh persecuted, quite frankly, and rather than than seeing the Christian love, the Christian charity, the uh, Christian benevolence, uh, rather than seeing this as a, as a blessing for all people, much less the content of the gospel as a blessing for all people, that is, uh, that is probably as foreign today as it was back then. That's why it was so shocking and so startling. I mean, in, in some respects, I think Psalm 47 then is uh, a mirror or a counterpart to say Psalm 2, because I think, you know, Psalm 2, where you've got the kings gathering together to hold counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, you know, that's that's what we see in Psalm 2. And I think that's the reality we more often see, whereas Psalm 47 gives us the positive picture of the way it should be and what God in winning his victory and and God in you know setting His anointed as the King, what does He intend for it? He He doesn't want to sit there in heaven and laugh at our silly plans and to to become angry when people set themselves against Himself. He wants to have this joy overflow into the nations for the fact that He's the the King. And so yeah, I think I, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I think that's well said, and uh, it, it's good for us to distinguish between the alien nature of God, where our sins prompt him to uh, punish, but uh, the the true nature, the proper nature of God is to love and to bless and to save. And I think in a very, very positive light, Psalm 47 extols that part of God's nature. Yeah, yeah. And, and the joyful outburst, exuberance that should be a part of our response, both the people of God and all the nations. So in verse one, all the peoples are clapping and they're shouting. They've got songs of joy. And the reason comes in in verse two, it is because the Lord, Yahweh, who is the most high, he is to be feared. He's a great king over all the earth. Take us into to what's how the psalm moves forward. Well, we've got, we've got several uh, parts in the uh verse two in our English translations that uh, we do have wherever that Lord is all capitalized in your English Bible. That's that's the uh, divine name of God, Yahweh, or back in the olden days when I was a kid, it was always Jehovah. But he is the most high. Um, you can't get any higher than God, Yahweh, uh, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, uh, exalted, and he is to be feared. This gets us into a first commandment kind of a thought where we, uh, Luther teaches us that we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Why? Because he is the only God, the one true God, Yahweh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And again, we're emphasizing this kingship. And a lot of things come to mind when people hear the word king, but a king is a mighty ruler and a king has a kingdom. And we're going to find out here who's a part of that kingdom in a little bit. But God, Yahweh, rules over his kingdom in a different way than every other king has in the past or will in the future. Because what what emphasizes or what fills or what proceeds from our great king is his steadfast love. And that uh, steadfast love, while that word is not used in this text, it is 
uh, prevalent in uh, the Psalms. This steadfast love extends to all the earth. So in verse one, we have all peoples. In verse two, we have all the earth. So not only all the people who dwell on the earth, but the entire earth itself, the entire universe. God, Yahweh is our mighty king. I, th- I find the imagery of clapping hands and shouting over the Lord's kingship, but then the one who is to be feared, th- that may sound a little a little bit of a dissonance there. Why, why is there joy? at the fear of God. Well, when we, when we see our enemies defeated, that is good news for us. Uh, all the way back to the first gospel promise in Genesis 3.15. And so God is to be feared as he is mighty and powerful, but we realize that that might and that power is against our enemies and not against us. He's not like every other king who uh, oppresses all the people for personal gain. God is love. Our king is love, and that love is for us. And in taking care of us, he defeats our uh, enemies. Um, Malachi 1, Zechariah 14, uh, several places throughout the um a book of Revelation, God is extolled as king. And in Revelation, the one who is exalted as king is the lamb who was slain and now begins his reign. That uh, that phrase might ring uh, familiar to people with uh, divine setting one and two in uh, our Lutheran service book. Yeah, no, that, that's that's fantastic. I as you're talking about this this thought of, of fear and still being good news because God has defeated our enemies. A, a recent example in the three year lectionary that that came up was when Jesus is in the Gerasenes and he casts out the legion of demons that go into the pigs, and the reaction is twofold. On the one hand, you've got most of the townspeople who want Jesus out of there because they're afraid of him. They've seen his great power. And their fear leads them to to cast Jesus out because, boy, if the demons could do what they did, and here's somebody who's more powerful than the demons, we don't want anything to do with him. Whereas on the other hand, you have the man who was healed, and he's got this great joy, the, the joy that comes from the fear of the Lord, that then leads him to go and tell his family how much Jesus has done for him. I think you, in that account, you see the, the two ways fear can take you. Psalm 47 is taking us the way of the, the man who was healed. Yeah, and that's, that's a beautiful example. The one that I was thinking of was uh, Peter and the miraculous catch of fish. Oh, yeah. And uh, Peter, you know, he just won the lottery with all these fish. Uh, he's he's going to be rich. And the only thing he can think of is get away from me. Uh, I'm a sinful man. I'm a sinful man. And I think ultimately it is our sin that causes that uh, that terror uh, kind of fear. And yet what God does is he uh, transforms that uh, terror by the gospel and turns it into a joyous love. And, uh, you know, we're we're a part of his kingdom and uh, we, we joyfully follow where the king leads us. 
Yeah, that, that's a great example. And I think that really goes to show why it's important, those words that we sing in Revelation, as you, you were saying, that it's the lamb who was slain that's begun his reign. The one who is the king over us is the one who bears the scars from his crucifixion that he he has because he loves us and he died for us. And so to see that this king overall with all this mighty power, well, what did he do with it? He used it to die for you. And, and that's where the kingship of our Lord, the great power of our Lord that is to be feared actually leads us into joy because we see the way that he, as you, as you said from the get-go, he reigns as a king different than any other, and he does so with his steadfast love. Our, our king uh, wears a crown of thorns and gives us a crown of righteousness. Uh, the, the children of God, the Jewish people, however you want to phrase it or say it, uh, they rejected King Jesus. We have no king but Caesar. And yet now, here in Psalm 47, Jesus is king for all peoples and for the entire earth. Uh, uh, a great, great uh, switcheroo there, if you want to look at it that way. That's right. So into verse three, and some of our conversation, I think, leads into this. It says that he, God, subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. This act of subjection or subduing what's what's being talked about here you know that's that's a um, uh, it's always a fun discussion when we get to this because you know when we think of uh, subduing someone or something it's almost always in a negative construct or concept you know um, hopefully um, Nebraska football will subdue the opponents on the field this fall something <laughs> they've been unable to do for many many years um, that's how we think about it and that that's not a wrong way and that's not a bad way but you mentioned the word and I think subjected is really a better word for us here because um, what God the King is doing is by his mighty victory, by his mighty action, by God going up and leading us, he is making us his subjects. We want to be his subjects. We are glad and fortunate and joyous to be his subjects. Um, the... Uh, efforts by the the enemies, the pagans, to uh, keep God's kingdom from coming is uh, really where where the spiritual battle and spiritual conflict is in our world. But um, God's kingdom comes even without our prayer, and we rejoice when God's kingdom has come to us. And basically what we're talking about there is as people hear the good news of the gospel and believe the good news of the gospel, we are converted from death to life. We are converted from hell to heaven, and we now are his subjects. We are now part of his kingdom. And in fact, more than subjects, we're adopted children of our heavenly father. Yeah, this is good news to be under the reign of the Lord. And we're going to keep talking about that here on Sharper Iron. We're looking at Psalm 47 with Pastor Clint Poppy. We need to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you 
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, July 18th. We are studying Psalm 47 with Pastor Clint Poppy. He serves at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Pastor Poppy, prior to the break, you were talking about how it's actually good news that we are subjects of God's kingdom because he makes us his children as a part of that kingdom. I'm reminded of, for example, in Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 6, he talks about you're either a slave to your sin or you're a slave to righteousness and even says you're a slave to God that that in one way or another you're going to serve someone you know or you have Jesus in the sermon on the mount where he says you you can only serve one one master one god it's either god or money so we we have this sometimes we think that we, well I can just do whatever I want I don't have to serve anyone well it's not quite quite it so it's actually good news to be a subject in God's kingdom uh this is uh, Luther. Luther talks about this in the explanation to the second article of the creed that that I may be His own and live under Him in His kingdom. That's a good thing to be to have Christ as my Lord. And that's a beautiful picture right there uh, to live under Him in His kingdom of this subjection or this subduing that we're talking about here. And we are fortunate that God has made us His subjects in His kingdom. How many times don't we see in the gospel accounts where the first words out of Jesus' mouth when he enters into a city or he begins a new teaching, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is in your midst. He's talking about himself. This is incarnational talk. The king comes to us to save us. And Jesus um, epitomizes the kingdom of God here on earth. He came to us. He took on flesh and blood. The king came to save his uh, wayward subjects. And that's exactly what he does through his life, death, and resurrection and ascension back to the right hand of God. And that's ultimately where we're going here in this psalm. That's right. So let's keep pushing forward to that that particular verse that we're getting to, verse 5. In, in verse 4, it says, He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. What is what is the psalm saying there? You know, verse verse 4 often gets overlooked because it is uh, it's in close proximity to 5, and everybody wants to get to 5. <laughs> but I think this is a, an interesting verse and an important verse for our day and age. In, uh, in so much of American and evangelical and Reformed Christianity, Christianity. Uh, decision theology is rampant, praying the sinner's prayer, asking Jesus into your heart. Um, you, you don't receive anything at the Lord's Supper, but you somehow spiritually ascend uh, to God. Um, 
all of these things are clearly taught against in Scripture. And here in this verse, verse 4 of Psalm 47, God teaches us that he is the one who does the verbs. He is the one who chooses us. He chooses our family. He chooses our heritage. He puts us into his uh, family, and he does this for our benefit. And all of this goes back, the reference here to, to Jacob, um, if you remember, there uh, the very, very difficult Bible passages in, uh, I believe it's in Romans, I don't know, 10 or 11, where it is, um, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Um, what's that all about? Well, Jacob had faith and Esau didn't. God chooses us. He gives us faith, and he makes us a part of his family. And this is all the way back to that declaration with regard to Jacob. Mm, yeah, I, I'm re- I recall a verse from, from Deuteronomy. I think it's in chapter 7, where the Lord tells his people, Israel, you know, I didn't choose you because you were so great or so many. In fact, you were the smallest, the weakest. I chose you because I loved you. <laughs> I love that passage. I, I think it fits so well with this, especially where it says the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. Again, this is, as you said, God does the verbs. He's doing the choosing here. Yes, and uh, we cannot emphasize this enough. Our people are immersed with this um, uh decision, do-it-yourself kind of theology, and wherever we can emphasize the uh, the truth that uh, Luther teaches us in his explanation to the third article of the Creed, I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe. And uh, we have to we have to emphasize this. This is pure gift, and God is the giver of all good gifts. Hmm. Now we come to verse five, which is the star of the show. We've been talking about it all along. God has gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of the trumpet. Take us into verse five. Um, this this is um, the center of the psalm. It is the um, highlight of the psalm, the main theme of the psalm. And as we talked about in our introductory remarks, it's really uh, God's M.O., and it emphasizes not only the ascension, and it certainly emphasizes the ascension, but it really, in a sense, emphasizes that God's power is utilized or exercised in specific times and in specific places to save his people. It literally has no boundaries. Um, when, when we're talking about the ascension, uh, Acts chapter 1, Luke uh, 24, Mark 16, all of these give us the historical hard data with regard to the physical bodily ascension of Jesus into heaven. I think Ephesians 4 is probably... Um, uh, paramount here because it not only tells us that he ascended physically bodily into heaven, Ephesians 4 teaches us why he did it. And it is uh, not to run and hide. It is uh, not to not to play any kind of games with us. We're not left on our own, but his work is complete. He ascends to the right hand of God, not a physical place, but a position of power. He sends the Holy Spirit, and now he is really present with us 
and among us, as God's word clearly teaches, filling all things with the power of his word. The, uh, the hymn, um, uh, 564, Christ sits at God's right hand, is a beautiful, beautiful hymnic teaching of not only the fact of the ascension, the, the physical reality of it, but also the beautiful, rich theology that comes with the ascension of Jesus. And sadly, many of our people have not heard or have heard very little regarding the ascension of our Lord, because quite frankly, many of our parishes do not celebrate the ascension. And uh, I think it's coming back. I think more and more have. But uh, we do not have a God who is absent from us, as uh, many of the um, other Christians in America teach. We have a God ascended at high, victorious. We We are full of the shouts and praises for our victorious God, knowing that he continues to be with us right here and right now. I opened up the hymnal to number 564 in Lutheran service book, Pastor Poppy. And I'm going to have to add this one to our Ascension service in, in years to come, because I think I, I haven't, because it's not in the Ascension section. Ah. And we sing, we sing, and I, I, I don't know how I missed it all these years, but it's fantastic for the Ascension. It, it is. I'm, I'm, it, it, go ahead. it teaches the Ascension, and since it isn't just an Ascension hymn, you can sing it anytime you want. That's true. That's true. <laughs> well, and I'm I'm right there with you with when it comes to the ascension of our Lord, and I I do think that it is coming back that we're talking more about it, and and to the great benefit of the church, because it I mean, and Psalm 47 I think is is the perfect example of why we need the ascension, and we need to have this in our minds that that Christ is crucified, risen, and ascended, that He is reigning, and that means really, really good news and lots of joy certainly for his people, and, and as this psalm is telling us, for the whole earth, the more we think about the ascension of our Lord and meditate upon it and rejoice in it, I think the better for us as Christians, particularly in these gray and latter days when things, I mean, you look at the world around you, you watch the news, and it seems like everything is spiraling out of control. How could it get any worse kind of thing? To know that our Lord Jesus Christ has ascended and, and if I can, can say not just that God has gone up with a shout, but that our brother Jesus, the man Jesus, has gone up with a shout. This is really good news and should make a really big difference in our lives. And just as uh, it was predicted in Scripture as well, um, most of us are familiar with the uh, suffering servant songs in Isaiah. We are probably most familiar with the uh, fourth servant song, the uh, the pinnacle of the suffering servant. And the very first verse of that uh, suffering servant song, uh, Isaiah 52, verse 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. I always wondered why there were three specific things there, but he is uh, high on a cross. He is lifted up from the dead, and he is highly exalted in his ascension. It is uh, it is clearly taught here uh, before we get that great suffering servant song. And uh, I have to think... Um, uh, well, he was my professor part-time when I was at the seminary, uh, Christopher Mitchell at uh, Concordia Publishing House. He's the one that uh, pointed that out to me. And 
that from that moment that has stuck in my brain about the important nature of the ascension of our Lord Jesus in Lutheran theology. Yeah, that's a really great insight in, in, from Isaiah. And again, just to, to see this throughout the scriptures, as you pointed out in Ephesians, also in the book of Revelation, I mean, it's, this God has gone up with a shout. I think that that scene from Revelation 5 that we've referenced where, you know, the lamb who is slain has begun his reign. I, I think I picked this up from Dr. Brighton's commentary that one of the ways to think about that text is that's the ascension of Jesus from heaven's point of view. So you have the apostles' point of view in, in Luke and in Acts and in Mark, and then you get heaven's point of view. And and there, boy, the, the rejoicing at Jesus' ascension, which means his reign over all things, is just overflowing. And then, of course, the beautiful thing about the divine service is we participate in that joy still today. I, uh, I had the privilege of sitting at uh, Dr. Brighton's feet for several classes, and uh, he was tough. Let me tell you, he was tough. <laughs> but um, with that, with that uh, glowing white hair and uh, his booming, majestic voice, I can still see him grabbing the lapel collars on his sport coat and uh, teaching us, teaching us uh, the deep truths of God. But he would emphasize again and again and again that the entire book of Revelation is about the ascension of our Lord, and this is God's perspective. And uh, it is it is uh, amazing when you think about, as you uh, read and study the book of Revelation, from that perspective of the ascension, and again, highlights the importance of it. Christians don't know what to do with the ascension, because Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then um, he leaves he skedaddles. He ascends into heaven. And so we, we don't want to call Jesus a liar, but where is he? Well, he's coming back, but the theology of the ascension of our Lord ties everything in together. He hasn't left us. He hasn't abandoned us. He continues to be our reigning king, even though he is not visibly present with us. He is present in word and sacrament. That's right. That's right. And so all of this, which is spoken of already in Psalm 47, is reason for great joy. So great of joy that verse six tells us that we better sing. And if you didn't get it the first time, it's going to tell you several times. <laughs> Again, verse six is one of those uh, you know, kind of throwaway verses here because uh, you know, kind of, kind of like the uh, 7-Eleven praise song, it just repeats the same thing, you know, sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our kings, sing praises. But when we, uh, we've been talking a lot about uh, the book of Revelation here, and in the book of Revelation, as well as other places in Scripture, uh, when things are repeated, it means something. Generally, when things are repeated three times, or when something is said three ways, even if it's a little bit different uh, nuance on each of the ways, we are, we are coached, we are taught to think of the Holy Trinity. When things happen in fours, we are coached or we are taught to think about the four points of the compass, the four corners of the earth, the four winds. This is a reference, not only an exhortation to sing praises, but the fact that it is repeated four times tells us that this is for all the earth. This is global. This is for all the earth, all creation. And um, again, 
something that often goes missing. Well, and that the fact that it's repeated four times, the four points of the compass to all the earth then flows right into verse seven. That's what it, what the psalmist says next. God is the king of all the earth. So again, sing praises. Sing praises and sing praises with a psalm. Um, again, there, there are a lot of things that have been written on this particular verse. Some of them are a little wacky, uh, but um, this verse, I think, teaches us that as we praise God, as we sing our praises to God, we sing our praises with the word of God. With a psalm means that our praises, our, our rejoicing, our celebration needs to be informed by God. This is not just pure emotion. This is not just gut feeling. But we are praising because of the word of God. Our praises are formed and shaped by the word of God. And I think this verse is really uh, important when we are evaluating certain things in worship, certain types of music, all of those things that uh, can, can tend to be um, really sticky wickets in our world today. God's word teaches us that being and flowing from the word of God comes true Christian praise. And I think that's a, a key point for us. I mean, it sounds like the same thing Paul says in Colossians chapter three, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And one of the ways that that happens is when you, and he uses the word, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, but all focused on that word of God. This is what is to dwell in us richly. And that's what informs and even brings about our praise as we hear God's word. And again, Psalm 47 is a fantastic example of this. How can we not help but start to sing for joy that that moment in the the divine service where the pastor says with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven we laud and magnify your glorious name evermore praising you and saying and then the organist without any introduction jumps right in and we start actually singing i mean that's and, and we're singing the word of god yeah and the and one thing that really uh um grinds my goat is uh when, when that part of the liturgy, evermore praising you and saying, and then we get, holy, 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 you know, some, some dirge kind. I mean, this is, this is the song of the angels. This is the heavenly celebration. And uh, if we, if we can't be singing and shouting at the top. And if we can't be uh, exuberant with our praise at this particular point where the Lord is coming to meet us, um, we need to, as Luther would say, take our hand and put it up against our chest and make sure our heart is still beating. And if it is, know the great joy that we have in the fact that the Lord is in fact reigning, which is where Psalm 47 is going to bring us in conclusion. We have the Lord reigns over the nations. We've, we've seen this. Now it says he sits on his holy throne. What what should we keep in mind there? Well, uh, when I hear that, I mean, he is the king. Um, we, we have the picture of God in heaven sitting on his uh, throne and the Ark of the Covenant is his footstool. Uh, so he, he, uh, uh, transverses, if you want to say, or connects heaven and earth. He's, uh, uh, 
king and lord over all. But I can't help but think of Isaiah chapter 6 when we get to uh, this particular verse where King Uzziah has died and the whole nation is in an uproar. You know, Uzziah has been a king for a long time. Who's going to be in charge? Are we going to have high inflation? Is the economy going to go bad? What's going to happen to our borders? Um, It's amazing how things, you know, are so contemporary. Um, Everybody's in a panic. Everybody's frantic. Who is really running the country? And Isaiah goes and God gives him the vision. And in the midst of his franticness among a frantic people, God shows him who's in control. God is sitting in the, in the throne and his train fills the whole temple. And the angels are singing praises to God. Holy, holy, holy. And God is in complete control. I think we, uh, in bad times and in good, can be greatly comforted that God sits on his holy throne. It doesn't matter who the political leader is. It doesn't matter who, quite frankly, the uh, church leader is. God is in control, and that should give us great peace and great comfort And it also connects us back to the picture that we have in Revelation 4 and in Revelation 5 of God ruling in heaven, God on the throne. Uh, Revelation 5, specifically Jesus on the throne. And once again, the angels singing that song of heaven. Now, as we move into the last verse of the psalm, this is where Abraham specifically comes up. You mentioned his name earlier when we were talking about this is all peoples, all nations. Uh, what is what is the God of Abraham? Why is that a significant phrase in verse 9? Well, there's another great hymn, the God of Abraham praise uh, in our hymnal. Uh, I don't know the number off the, off the top of my head of that one, but... Um, the uh, preschool kids or maybe VBS or Sunday school kids uh, oftentimes have learned that little ditty that uh, Father Abraham has many sons and I am one of them. This is uh, really what we are talking about. God gave Abraham a promise, even though they, uh, he and Sarah were childless, that he would have descendants that would be as numerous as the stars in the sky, that from his loins would come the Savior of the world through whom all nations of the earth would be blessed. Um, That promise was laughed at, but God kept his promise in Isaac. And then in Jacob, uh, through David, the incarnation, the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now God is sort of redefining who a son of Abraham is. And we get more of that in John chapter 8. But all who have faith in Christ as Savior and Lord are Abraham's sons and daughters. They are the new Israel. And the um, princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. This message will turn enemies into believers. This message will turn enemies into brothers and sisters. This message will convert the nations, and it goes out to the four corners of the earth. 
Mm, yeah, it's a wonderful, wonderful, for, as you said at the beginning, we have the conversion of the Gentiles in mind already here. What about the the shields at the end of this verse? You know, uh, that is that is interesting. A lot of uh, a lot of people say, well, you know, that that shield is just kind of like code word. It's another way to say the leaders or, you know, the 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 mighty warriors who would carry a shield. I tend to think that it uh, connects us back with um, uh, Psalm 46, where in uh, Psalm 46, verse 9, he makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Um, there are some translations that translate shields there. God is our mighty warrior. He is the warrior king. All of our human efforts, be they military or all of our efforts to fight against God, are for naught. Because God is the one who breaks all of the shields, all of the powerful people, all of the powerful mechanisms in our world. All of these things will be subjected to our great warrior king, Jesus Christ. Pastor Papa, we have about two minutes left on the morning. What a wonderful, joyful psalm. Help us to wrap things up this morning. Well, I think one thing we didn't really get a chance to talk about much was the the whole cloud theology. And I think uh, sometimes at the ascension of our Lord, people people get caught up with the whole cloud thing. Well, you know, what kind of a cloud was it? How high was the cloud? How high did Jesus go? Uh, and And we get we get caught up in all of these foolish kind of discussions. The cloud is a very, very real, tangible way to see the presence of God. We have this cloud present, as we've talked about uh, many times with the uh, children of Israel and their wilderness wanderings. We have this cloud present at the transfiguration of our Lord. Jesus ascends to where God the Father is doesn't matter how high he went. He went into the cloud. The cloud is the presence of God. And remember what God's word teaches us, that when Jesus comes again in his power and might and glory on the last day, that the clouds of judgment will gather. This cloud is a picture of the presence of God. But for the children of God, those who have been redeemed and forgiven by the blood of Jesus, we don't cower in fear. We lift up our heads, Psalm 24. We lift up our heads in joyful expectation because the Lord who has gone up with a shout will come back and get us and take us to be where he is forever and ever and ever. Amen. Pastor Clint Poppy is pastor at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska, helping us today with Psalm 47. Pastor Poppy, thanks for being our guest today. Oh, it's always a great time and lots of fun, Tim. Thanks for having me. God has gone up with a shout. Our brother Jesus Christ has ascended. He reigns. He is your king. Rejoice, dear saints. God reigns. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Mm-hmm.